Good morning again. I'm Luke Proctor, the intern here. And so because Chuck is sick, we're actually not going to be looking at the Great Samaritan passage. Uh, But I did one time hear a story that made me very nervous about ever preaching on the Great Samaritan. There was a theological seminary in California that decided that they would have host an entire seminar, an entire weeks-long seminar on the Great Samaritan. And they were in an urban area, so you had to park in a garage and then walk to the seminary. And they, it was an interfaith thing. They had rabbis and pastors and priests of all different denominations, and they all had to give a lecture to a large auditorium on the Great Samaritan. But in between the parking garage and the auditorium, they uh, staged a car accident. And uh, with fake blood, and the uh, person in the car accident was unconscious, no cell phone, just to see how they would react. So the seminar wasn't about the Great Samaritan at all. It was if uh, these priests or uh, rabbis or pastors would actually go out of their way to help this person. And so that's always, I thought that was an extremely mean joke, but it was very, that what it ended up, uh, the, the study revealed was that depending on how early they showed up to the auditorium was how willing they were to be a good Samaritan. So not, not the best conclusions uh, for the, the clergy members as part of that study, but that was very interesting. But if you'll please bow your heads with me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word, uh, that it's always true, that we can always attain knowledge and always understand you better from it. And Lord, I just pray that as we pursue that knowledge It will be for the sake of your gospel, which is that we alone cannot save ourselves and that you came down through your son, Jesus Christ, to save us. And it changes the world and it changes our lives personally and it changes how we look at everything we do. And I just pray that as we look uh, in this passage we'll study today, uh, that that will be important, that your gospel will be advanced. Amen. So, if you could please turn your Bibles to John 20. I think John 20 is the most epic, remarkable piece of literature ever written. And actually, way back in April, I had the privilege to preach on John 20, and I talked about the entire chapter, and we weighed the claim of John 20 through the eyes of the doubting disciple Thomas. And the question was, did Jesus really bodily resurrect from the dead? And of course I said, yes, absolutely. He for sure did, and you can trust that claim that Jesus stands having defeated death as the king of the universe. And so today I want to return to John 20, and instead of focusing on the entire chapter, we're just going to focus on verse 29. So if you'll read along with me. So Jesus said to him, and the him in there is Thomas, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. The word of the Lord. I would argue in this verse that Jesus isn't just reminding Thomas about his lack of faith. He's not just comparing Thomas to us, the people who later on believe, even though we can't see God, even though we can't see the resurrected Jesus. But Jesus 
is alluding to the most fundamental reason for all doubt, for all unbelief. And that is sometimes the mere existence of God. Because we cannot see God, because He is invisible, it can be an extreme leap of faith to even get to square one, to even believe in Him. And so instead of looking at this passage through Thomas's eyes, I want to look at this passage through our eyes. Because we, as 21st century people in El Paso, Texas, are the ones who make the decision of whether or not to believe whether God exists at all. And if we do believe that God exists and we come to a saving faith in Jesus, it's Jesus in this passage who is calling us, the people who have not seen but believe, blessed. And so I have three points for today. One is the God you will not see. The God you just won't see. The second one is the God you can see. And we're going to talk about can you see God? Of course, I'll say yes, and we'll talk about that. And then finally, we're going to finish with a point that the God who sees you, the God who sees you. So the God you won't see, and then the God you can see, and then the God who sees you, apart from anything me or you can see or discover. So the God you won't see. During a speech uh, in 1961, the Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev spoke to an anti-religious group, and he talked about his first cosmonaut had gone up to space and had confirmed that God did not exist because he had seen no God there. And that is, in a minimalist sense, true. That cosmonaut did not go into outer space and see God. Because humanity used to think, before we had advanced technology, that God existed somewhere in the sky or in the clouds. And then, once we learned a little bit about the weather, we thought, well, maybe God reigns in outer space. But we realize that we can't place God. He's not somewhere you can get to in a car or a boat, a plane, even a spaceship. We can't go see him. If you talk to someone who has lost their sight, who's blind, they you realize that we have several spiritual similarities with them, that we can be blind spiritually from this idea, this problem, that God seems to be invisible. Someone who's blind will tell you that if they had once been able to see, there was a total perception change of life. Everything they thought about life had changed. Their perception of themselves, just a basic idea of not being able to look at themselves in the mirror. Their perception of themselves has changed. They would say that their perception of others, now just a voice or something that they would have to place their hands on their face to picture, had changed. They were more harnessed. They were slower. They had to be more deliberate. Walking down the road or eating or getting a cup of water, their blindness has altered everything they do, and it has altered their perception of the entire world. And so sometimes, as Christians, we can doubt, and maybe if you are not a Christian, you can doubt, just from the very fact that you can't see God. It's a leap of faith to believe in something you cannot see. And if you talk to a skeptic, even if you're a very mature Christian, you will have very difficult time answering some pretty simple questions. How do you know God exists? Or where does God live? 
Or where is God right now? Why can't I see God? And if God is interested in belief, or as Jesus says, blessed are those who believe, why doesn't God make it easier for me to believe in him? Why doesn't he just show himself to us right now? And then it hits you, when someone asks that question, that God really is invisible. And when I say invisible, I mean you can't see him. Even if you believe in him, even if you claim you pray to him, you may even tell people that you have a personal relationship with him, a spiritual relationship with him. You can't prove it because you can't bring others with you when you go see God. You can't point them out to somebody. And that can be a scary realization if you're someone who claims that your faith is one of the most important or the most important things to you in your life. So I think that the fact that we can't see God, literally, is this singular point of origin for all unbelief. People can have very sophisticated reasons why they don't believe in God. Uh, they can be very a lot smarter than us. But I think that first and foremost to us, the fact that God is invisible is probably the number one reason for unbelief. So how can we, as Christians, not sometimes think of our belief in God, a spirit we cannot see, uh, someone we can't feel, and not think that maybe we can be incompetent in our faith. And now suddenly you can become uncertain of the things you believe in the most, or maybe the things that are most important to you. And what is perhaps even more interesting than the fact that we can't see God, the fact that God's invisible, is this idea that we all actually can picture him in our minds. If I asked you to get out a sheet of paper and draw a picture of God, you would come up with something. You may say that's blasphemous, or you may be very uncomfortable doing something like that, but you would think of something. Maybe you would picture a spirit floating around, or an old wise man. Maybe you picture a king on a throne room, or maybe hands that cup the planet Earth. But we all in our psyche place God somewhere in our minds. Even atheists, like someone like Richard Dawkins, has a picture of God in their minds. And of course, despite our mind's invention, God's invisibility still standing, the picture of God in our minds, where we're placing him in our psyche, is not the reality. Because we've never literally seen what God looks like. So in one sense, we are stuck with the impossibility of seeing any direct physical evidence for God. And in another sense, we are inventing an image of God in our minds that is simply not reality. And that is the foundation of unbelief. And I should say, it's not only the cornerstone of atheism or agnosticism, but it's also the very foundation of something like works righteousness or idolatry. For example, if you're sitting here today and you say you're a Christian, but the God you picture is primarily concerned with your performance, but probably not. The God you worship is primarily concerned with the performance of people you surround yourself with. Then you are worshiping a non-attributal, non-existent deity. You are engaged in a form of worship of an invisible God. Now let's say someone says they don't care about God. They're agnostic. It doesn't matter. Who cares about God? I'm in it for money and for power. Whatever small scale that can be. 
but I'm going to take my life and my brain, my intellect and my gifts, and I am out there to simply just please myself. Well, then they too are confronted with this idea of the invisible God. They are striving and working to something that simply does not exist. So this idea of God's invisibility and this question of whether or not he exists is not just a problem for Christians, but a problem for everybody. It's a problem for people that are playing golf right now. It's a problem with people that are at the office right now working a 90-hour week to get the next promotion or to make the next dollar. But it's also a problem for people that are playing Xbox right now. For everyone, the invisibility of God is a huge problem. How do you know God can exist if you can't see him and you picture him in your mind, but it's not actually what God looks like? Why won't God prove his existence to the entire world? So that leads us to our next point. And as we come to grips that God truly is invisible, are there ways we can see him? Or... The question is, if you don't accept anything supernaturally, are there ways you can point to God, to someone who says, I don't believe anything the Bible says, so don't even start with that. And I think there are. So let's talk about the God you can see, the God it's possible to see. Is there any evidence out there that God exists? Even if you're talking to someone who rejects all supernatural things. And I'm entirely indebted in this section of my sermon, to these two books by Tim Keller. One's called Making Sense of God. The other one's called Reason for God. And in both of those books, Keller discusses what he calls clues of God, meaning he can't prove it, which is refreshing that someone says they can't absolutely prove God exists, but ways that we can know he can exist through clues. One is this idea of the fine-tuning principle. The fine-tuning principle says that even though there's a lot of chaos in the universe, the planet Earth is uniquely, amazingly suitable for human lives due to 15 constants. Constants are big in math and science, and there's 15 of them that do not change, that make the Earth an extremely suitable place to live. One of them is called the cosmological constant, or the idea that there's almost equal balance between positive gravity and negative gravity in the universe. This is a tiny fraction. It's 1 over 1 followed by 121 zeros. So it's basically zero between positive and negative gravity. And due to this tiny fraction, a slight increase or decrease in the gravitational force in the universe would either cause it to collapse, to implode, or to fly apart. Yet in the 15 billion years scientists think this earth has existed, for some reason, a slight increase in positive or negative gravitational force has never happened. Another clue Keller mentions is the natural rhythm of life. And that's defined as the instinctiveness of every living thing, apart from the fact of whether it has a brain or not, functions completely inexplicably without a creator. And there's a lot of directions we can go with this, but I thought a good one would be kangaroos. Because the stewards have kangaroos, and they are very neat. All right? So listen to this. At birth, the baby kangaroo, which is called a joey, 
can be as small as a grain of rice. Listen to this. It can be either as small as a grain of rice or as big as a bee. So from 0.2 inches to 0.9 inches. And when the joey is born, it is guided safely into its mother's comfy pouch where it goes for 120 to 450 days. And that means that the joey... Uh, can survive outside the womb as soon as three months after it's born if there's plenty of food and water and safety in whatever area the mother kangaroo is in, or if there's a drought or a famine or it's unsafe, the joey can stay in the pouch for a year and a half, depending on the circumstances. So the ability of a kangaroo to instinctively adapt and overcome, even in pregnancy, is just one of the many incredible examples of the natural rhythm of life. And again, when you talk about this and ask whether or not there's a creator, the underlying question is, why can kangaroos do this if there's, without God, there is no reason that should happen? The same thing with the 15 constants that make planet Earth an incredible place to live. There's, without God, there is no reason that should happen. And so when you start talking about probability and you start looking at the evidence, you see a creator. Another clue might be sitting on your lap right now, and that's the English translation of the Bible. The English translation. You know, we take the Bible for granted, right? We have several at our home. We have blue ones and pink ones and camouflage ones. You have the King James Version with your thou's and your these and your dose. And then you have like the Jesus Street Version where he's saying, yo, dudes, you know, listen up here, disciples. Okay, we can, we can really take the idea of the Bible for granted, but it has an unbelievable history. Now, again, someone might disregard everything the Bible says, but you can tell them some quick facts about the Bible's history itself, regardless of what it actually says. For instance, there are 20,000 handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament. And to put that in perspective, there are only 251 handwritten manuscripts of, C- of Julius Caesar's The Gaelic Wars, which is just accepted as history. Uh, we have manuscripts of the Gospel of John, including the text we're looking at today, dating back to the second century, only a few years after the writer passed away. And we've talked a lot uh, before about how the gospel accounts are written as eyewitness accounts, meaning that the gospel accounts painstakingly cite names, specific names of people, uh, that anyone reading the claims in the first century could go ask, hey, did this really happen Did Jesus really say this? Did he really walk on water? Did he really feed 5,000 people? Did he really resurrect from the dead? And each gospel account, all four of them, go into specific naming details of people that were still alive at the time that could refute the claim. Of course, they didn't because they affirmed it, saying, yes, that for sure happened. So that's pretty amazing. And then finally, and this is actually a pretty recent development, we found a piece of the gospel of Mark in a mummy from the first century in Egypt. Meaning that Mark's gospel account was so common in Egypt 
that it was being used to pack a mummy in the first century, which is, of course, the century Jesus lived in. So the gospel in, within Jesus' uh, generation's lifetime was so common that it was used for common purposes, not even in Israel, not even uh, north of Israel, but way down in Egypt. So the Bible has an absolutely incredible history that makes no sense unless there's a claim that it's true and there's a sovereign God to spread that claim. Now, that is some apologetics, and as you can see, I can get really into that. But we're going to wrap this up by talking about the God who sees you. You can go 12 rounds with apologetics, uh, trying to illuminate God in a dark world. And that's important work, and I get into it. My brain is wired that way. I personally have to know. I have to analyze. I majored in history. I love reading and citing and uh, finding that primary source and seeing if something really happened. But let's look again at verse 29 where Jesus says, blessed are the ones who believe, the ones who trust in him, because they will become the people of God. And I don't think there's a better verse in John 20 to remind us about what the gospel is. Because my logic and historical analysis and study of scripture, as much as I enjoy it and think it's important, will not bring me to faith. It will not save me. I am not going to smart my way or analyze my way to become one of God's people. Because somewhere along the line, my logic will be flawed, my analysis will be biased, and my experiences, the people I grew up with, uh, the education I received, will cause me uh, to see things through a deluded view. But even more than that, at the end of the day, after I finish giving this sermon, or I finish praying in front of the church, or after I pray to God privately, or after I've listened to an atheist and goes, yeah, that guy doesn't know anything he's talking about. At the end of that day, on my own, I am a complete jerk. I am selfish. I only look out for what's best for me. I hold the people that... I surround myself with in contempt when something doesn't go my way. I have terrible flaws. And so if God doesn't exist, the best chance I have is to hide that or minimize that. But I'm never going to fix that problem. And so when we talk about invisibility and things we can't see, let's return to this idea of blindness through the eyes of the Bible. We find fault with God for being invisible, but perhaps we should actually see what the Bible says is invisible, which is our sin. The Bible talks a lot about invisibility and blindness, but it never tells us that we won't be able to see God. It tells us we won't be able to see our own sin. It means that what's hindering with us, what's wrong with us, is our failure and our failure to see our failure, and our failure to fix our failure. And that explains why I would be selfish, or have an unquenchable feeling of superiority. That explains why anyone would engage in self-worship, or why we would work on minimizing our faults, 
rather than trying to fix them at the root. And that explains why we could be bitter with this idea that we can't somehow see God whenever we want, that we can't physically have evidence of him. That's why we can criticize him for being invisible, for not meeting my needs or demanding things from him. So what is John 20 all about? Or what is this passage about Jesus saying, blessed are those who have not seen? What is this about? It's not about how I find God. As if I'm looking for him in the woods with a flashlight, or I go on a spiritual journey up a mountain and get wisdom and knowledge. It's about the God that sees me and sees you. He sees my faults. He sees your faults too. And he does something about it. He does everything about it. John 20 is about taking that belief away from yourself, taking that criticism away from God, and believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It reminds us that we aren't invisible to God. He sees a heartache we have, and he did something about it. He takes our sin and our flaws, and he did not just something, but everything about it. He is all-encompassing in his power over sin and death. Colossians 1.5 describes Jesus as the image of God made invisible, the creator of all things. And that's the best part about Jesus. He reminds us that God is very real, that God made himself visible on our behalf, and God did all the work on our behalf. So why do we ask God to prove his existence? When we realize that in Jesus Christ, God is not invisible at all. Instead, he proves his existence, and even more importantly, he makes your existence valuable. Because he's saying, I see your flaws, and I still love you, and I assign value to you despite what you've done to me and to others. You know, I was giving reasons for why I think that we can see God And a skeptic would say, well, I don't know about that, or I disagree with you, Luke, or you don't know what you're talking about, or that's not a good argument for God. And that may be the case. But one of the most mind-boggling metaphors in the Bible trying to describe our relationship as human beings to God is found in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, what Paul was trying to do was he was trying to say how wide that gap is. And so he said, okay, God existing in different dimensions and being a spirit, and being the creator, and us the created thing, God is the potter, and you are clay. That was the metaphor he came up with. It's actually kind of difficult to uh, compare clay and the potter. You don't pull out a sheet and say, okay, pros for being clay. Okay, cons for being the potter. It's pretty one-sided. The clay is just wet Dirt can't even move on its own. You can actually make clay two-dimensional by flattening it on a table. The clay can't move or anything. And so compare that with a potter. The potter is an intricate being full of biological complexity that has the ability to walk and to talk and to think and can do things like say, well, I'm going to sit down and mold some clay. 
that potter has so much control over the clay. But if you take Paul's metaphor a step further, it should shoot chills down your spine because it's an extraordinary picture of God's grace poured out on us. Because Jesus Christ, as our potter, if you can even imagine, and I don't know if you can, somehow becomes clay. The potter becomes the clay. He becomes muddy and dirty. Jesus goes that far to the lowest dimensions, to the least amount of sophistication, to wet dirt. He comes down to our level and he looks at the world through two human eyes, just like we have. But instead of getting more incensed at us, or instead of saying, hey, your life is pretty worthless, he gives it value. He says, trust me, you're one of God's people now. And so he takes us, who we who were once lumps of clay, and he makes us living, breathing children of God. And if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and you put your trust in him, then you're one of God's people. And you know what becomes invisible next. It's those flaws. It's that sin that even after you're a Christian, you won't be able to get rid of on your own. God looks at you and he sees right through you to his son and says, you are on the same status. You are my son. You are my daughter. Please join my people. So the chains of the selfishness and the pettiness and all of those flaws, they fall off. Not because you become a superhuman and you feed all those ideas, but because Jesus Christ took that sin and that flaw and paid for it by grace alone. And so if you took out a piece of paper and you try to draw God, I hope you would draw Jesus. I hope you would draw a cross. And I hope that that would be the very picture of grace. So let's pray. Dear Father, we can be frustrated in our inability to see you or our perception that we don't get direct answers from you. We can be frustrated when we talk to others that don't even think you exist. And it seems like such a... that, that we live uh, with non-believers or unbelievers or doubters in, in different universes that we can't even connect. And so... Lord, I pray that as we confront those ideas, we realize that you don't live in our universe, and yet you came down to it. You, through your Son, became a human being, saw things through our eyes, took our sin, and paid the ultimate penalty for our faults so that we can become one of your children by simply belief. And I pray that that will affect how we view the world, that that will change the way we wake up each morning. And Father, thank you so much for your grace. Amen.